we're wrapping up this series in Hebrews, and last week and this week, I would say, are sort of the culmination of where this letter has been going uh, for, uh, today we'll be in chapter 12 and 13, so for 13 chapters, where this author has been encouraging the readers to end up. And, and last week, we looked uh, at, at some perseverance. Today, we're going to look at some endurance and, and hope. The hard part about today is that it has to do with the topic of suffering. And uh, this is one of those things that could end up being like a six-part series, and, and we're trying to drill down into one talk and go through the topic of suffering. And what it means is I'm not even going to barely scratch the surface of, of all that the, the, the topic of suffering has to do with. Um, so forgive me if I don't cover maybe a, a specific question that you have. Um, and I'm also going to take advantage of the fact that probably the majority of people in this room believe that there is a God who is in control of creation and the universe, and, and the majority of people in this room probably believe that that God sent the man Jesus to give us salvation and deliver the gospel. And so, if you don't fall into those camps, if you're not sure about the person of God, or you're not sure about Jesus, or you want to talk more about suffering, like, I'm all ready for coffee, lunch, dinner, whatever you want to do, I'll have a conversation with you, and we can get into a much more philosophical conversation. It probably won't be good for you because I'm not very bright. But we can have that conversation. It's just not something that I can get into today and take, you know, another three hours to, to unpack. So forgive me if I don't cover something that maybe you've got a question about. Um, so we're going to be talking about suffering. We're going to be talking about what the author is encouraging the readers in Hebrews to go after, which is endurance and hope. And we're going to look at, you know, how we can have that hope. And as big a a topic as suffering is, I don't want this to just be a trite, well, here's three steps on how to endure, okay? Because it's so much deeper than that, and I get that, and I understand that. So I pray that the the gospel comes through here, and it's not just a three-step, you know, way to get through suffering. Um, So last week, I talked about how my family and I took a trip to California a couple weeks ago uh, on vacation, something we've been planning for a long time. And I want to share, again, another thing that happened to us while we were out there, because to me it pertains, it's a good analogy for where we're going today. So in California, uh, if, if you know this, there's these giant redwood trees, and I've wanted to see these trees my entire life, and I think we have a, a picture of a cross-section of a, a redwood tree. And, and so, I don't know if everybody can see that the magnitude of this tree, but we were able to see these things in person, and literally brought me to tears, like just being in the presence of something, something so massive was incredible to me. Now, I don't know if those in the back can see, but these trees, the, the biggest ones that are still standing, are incredibly old. This tree, this picture is from like 1966, this tree started growing in 550 AD, okay, so it's, you know, over, what, 1500 years old, almost 1500 years old at this point. And, and we were able to see some of these trees, and they're, you know, they're 14, 15 feet wide at the bottom, over 300 feet tall, just straight as an arrow. Unbelievable. And, and so, you know, you got this picture up here, you can see these things. I mean, just, just think about this. This tree was around when Pope Gregory was consecrated in 590 AD, okay? The tree was around when Muhammad was born and Islam started, was around when Richard the Lionheart was crowned king, which happened on this day in 1189. On this day in 1777, the American flag was flown for the first time in battle. This tree was around. And go on through and look. I mean, look, 
look where the, the, the Civil War is. It's out at, like, the bark. You know what I mean? Like, so I was just blown away by the size of these things. And, and you know, if, if trees could talk, you know what I mean? Like, if, if they could reveal what they've seen over the years. And, all right, you can get rid of that picture if you want to go back to the, the Hebrew slide. Um, here's the incredible part. We're able to just walk around them, take pictures of them. There's sequoias that people drive cars through because they're hollowed out in the middle. My family, I was too chicken to do it, but the, the other 80% of my family, ziplined above redwood trees. Just monkeying around on these trees, right? Like climbing up them, you put a little cable on, and you're, you're zipping across trees 260 feet in the air or something. Like, it's crazy to me. And basically what they were saying to us was all these facts about the trees. These, these trees are unbelievable for this reason, and they don't burn because they have this acid in them, and nothing else grows around them because they're so tall. And, you know, just follow the rules here when you're on the zip line and click in, and everything will be okay, and it'll work out for your enjoyment, and zip, 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 just all around the woods. And it's like you start to lose the magnitude of what these things are and how long they've been around and how grandiose they are. And when I was coming to this, this topic of suffering... I was struck by the analogy that it's really it's kind of what we do with God, in that he's so big, you know, creates the universe just by speaking it into being, creates us, creates everything, is in charge of everything, unbelievably huge, powerful, magnificent, and yet he calls us to himself, and we can just figuratively sit in his lap and call him Dad. And I think sometimes we lose the fact that God is a mystery in so many ways and in so many things we cannot understand or grasp who God is and what he does and why he does it. But we want to categorize everything, we want to make everything linear and logical and so we try to put God into these boxes and when we come to suffering, we just can't do it. We just cannot make it logical and fit what we think the universe should look like. And so I say all that, I front load the whole talk with this analogy about a redwood tree and zip lines and who God is, because some of this is just a mystery of why God does what he does. And we can't categorize everything, yet at the same time, God in his amazing grace and love towards us allows us to come and ask questions and poke at him and get frustrated with him and question and question and question. And his response to me, is, it's always, I love you. <laughs> I love you. And I've sent Jesus to prove it. So we're going to go after this a little bit today. What the author in Hebrews is encouraging his readers in all this time and coming to this point is, you are going to suffer. And he's not the only author to confirm this. I mean, if you look through all of the New Testament, you'll see all the authors say the same thing. Jesus said it. You will suffer. There will be difficult times. James goes so far as to say, count it as joy. Somehow, Peter says something similar. But this author is encouraging the reader, saying, you will suffer, but here's what it looks like to suffer with hope. Here's what it looks like to endure. So that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, I'm sure all of us have suffered in various ways. I'll be the first person to say that my life has been relatively easy and free of suffering. It really has. I've seen so much more suffering in in the world as I've traveled it, in people around me, people who've lost children, uh, loved ones to disease, like I really have had a relatively easy life. So if, if I say something that seems like, oh, this guy has no idea, I might not. Please forgive me. 
But I think we've all experienced it enough to know that we can dive into it here and, and look at suffering and, and what we can do with it in small ways and in the big problems of life that we face. So it's a universal question. What do we do about suffering? How do we endure? How do we have hope in the midst of it? And, and I'm going to say today that we have hope by looking at, at God in who he has been in the past. We have hope by looking at who God is now to us and who he will be in the future. Okay, so we're going to read through this chapter and, and look at these three things. So if you have your copy of the scriptures there, please take it out. You can look at Hebrews 12. We're going to read through this a couple of verses at a time. and I believe we'll have it up on the screen. So Hebrews 12, I'm going to repeat a little bit of the verses that we read last week. All right, if you look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, the author says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you know, all these people of the faith that have gone before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then he says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down because it was finished. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the first thing I want to talk about here is what the author is saying is, you are going to suffer. I want you to look back at what God has already done. Look back at what he has done to show his love for you, to sustain you. He's saying you can endure because of what God has done. Now think about the the narrative of Scripture and the narrative that God has been writing through all time. Adam and Eve, you know, humanity sins and walks away from God. Says we want our own creation, we want our own kingdom, we want to be in charge, we don't want you in charge, and all of creation starts to break apart because of it. We see the effects of this in lots of different ways. But the earth feels the effects, people feel the effects. And God, in his grace, says, I will bring you back. I will draw you to myself. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. So in the, in the arc of, of you know, Israel's story, we see that he starts to do this with Abraham, and he continues to reiterate this covenant like we talked about last week. And God's saying, I love you, I want you to be with me. Ultimately, though, what we see is this story this narrative of, of covenant and this narrative of I, you know, God's love for his people comes to fruition in Jesus. And we see Jesus sent by God as a servant representing humanity and the sacrifice that needed to be made because of sin. If, if you have it, you can turn there. If not, you don't have to. Isaiah 53 is a great prophetic passage about who God said his servant would be, who the Messiah would be when he came. And I want you to listen to some of these words. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was, that brought us peace was upon him. 
Listen to that. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This passage written years before Jesus would come was pointing to the fact that he was going to be a suffering servant. People weren't going to want to look at him. He wasn't going to be special. He wasn't going to be some rock star. He wasn't going to be some incredible leader that everyone flocked to and stayed with. Instead, he was going to be a suffering servant, despised by people. But what we see is that despite being despised, despite being afflicted, he took our sins upon him. God says, and promised to Isaiah, through Isaiah, to us. So, when we are suffering, at least in my life when I'm suffering, a way that I find hope is to look back and see what God has already done to end suffering, which was to send one to suffer in our place. He sent Jesus to be a suffering servant in our place. And I can look back and see God's love for Israel and for all of us through that story leading up to Jesus And we see that Jesus suffered in all the ways that we do. Right? If you think about it, if you look at the way Jesus suffered, he suffered in all the ways that we do, all the ways that we are afraid of going through, Jesus suffered through. Just a few. Betrayal by his friends, homelessness, hunger, loneliness. Think about how lonely Jesus was. Beating, spit on to the point... And, and, and be to the point of death, crucified on a cross. All the things that we're afraid of, being alone, being betrayed, dying, Jesus took on our behalf. Jesus got the full measure of what we deserved. Separation from God, ultimately. So God, when, when we, church, when we are suffering, we can look back and see that God does not want our suffering. He sent Jesus to, to take suffering for us, and to be crucified on our behalf. But another thing that I want to look at is that Jesus suffers with us. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is in John 11, where Jesus is, is approaching Mary and Martha, two sisters who were part of his ministry team, and, and he's coming to them because he was told that Lazarus, their brother, was dying, and then ultimately died. And Jesus goes to meet this family that he loves and that he cared for so much. And he gets there. If you have scriptures, you can look at it. If not, that's fine. John 11, in verse 32, Jesus is approaching them and it says, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Where have you laid Lazarus? Where is he buried? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Church, I don't know about you, but I am moved by that passage. I'm moved by this regularly when I think that Jesus, when he saw their weeping, when he saw their pain, when he saw what they were going through, he wept with them. He didn't just say, oh, it'll all be okay. Get over it. God's got a plan. He weeps with them. 
This is, to me, this is one of the definitions of Emmanuel, God with us, that he comes alongside of us and says, I understand. I have been where you are. I have walked through what you're walking through. I'm with you. I will cry with you. I will weep with you. That's the beauty of of God in action, his love towards us. Uh, You know, like I said, I've never been through incredible suffering like I know some people have, but I know, I mean, probably eight or nine people who've lost children. And I can't think of a more unbearable pain uh, to go through. And one of these guys, I was able to talk with him about this through the course of him going through this grieving and to be able to say, what do you need? Like, like, I felt like any trite thing I would say just didn't matter. And what I've heard from him and, and so many other people going through this is like, just be with me. Just be sad with me. Just cry with me. Just put your arm around me and pray with me. Or just sit and be quiet with me. Because words can't fix that. Church, we get to be Jesus to people sometimes and come alongside them and just sit and just weep with them like Jesus did. But this is our God. This is our God who came and took, took upon flesh upon himself and came and walked in our shoes, suffered the way that we did and we do, and he weeps with us. For me, I find hope in that, that we don't have a God who says, just get with the program. Just trust me, there's a, there's a good plan in place, it'll all be okay. He says, I get it. It's terrible, and he weeps with us. There's something special about that and so unique in the Christian faith. But ultimately, it's the gospel. It was unfair to Jesus that he had to go through that, but it's all God's grace to us that he did. So we can suffer with hope because of what God has done in the person of Jesus. Okay. So we're going to go into these next verses. If you go in Hebrews 12, verse 4. I would say that we can have hope by looking to who God is now. All right? And what he is doing now. Look in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, this is now he's trying to encourage these readers again. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you've forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. He quotes from Proverbs here. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Sounds great, right? Okay. Thank you. Uh, He says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your arms and your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now, this is the most complicated part of this whole text. And this is where, like I said, we could spend hours 
going through, all that is wrapped up in this. But the thing that I want to drill down on is really in verse 7. And, and women in the room where it says treated you as sons, this is full adopted heirs and children of God, sons and daughters, okay? He says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, as children. That word there, discipline, when you look at it in different contexts in Greek, it, it means training, it means chastisement, it means uh, correcting and, 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 and pushing into the right way to go. So I don't think necessarily that it's, you've done wrong, you're going to be punished. I don't think it's necessarily that kind of discipline, though I think it does happen. But God is shaping us because we're his children, and he loves us. Remember, as demonstrated by Jesus, he loves us, he is for us, and he wants us to be children who are trained in righteousness and trained in holiness to be like him. He's a father that cares for his kids. Now, I'm a dad. I know some of you here don't have kids. That's fine. You, you, you were a kid at some point. You are still a child of someone. You know what it was like to be disciplined, to be raised by someone, in theory. You know, with me, when I'm with my kids, and I'm with other kids, right? Say, like, you know, we have these barbecues at our house all summer. I've got my kids there, and I've got other people's kids, all right? Some of you kids are in the room, all right? Now, if I see something happening in the room that maybe shouldn't be happening or needs correcting, I'm going, to go and I'm going to address all the kids. But there's really only three kids that I really deeply, truly care about. Mine, right? I mean, like, if, if I'm talking to two kids, my son, another boy, and the, and the other boy says, eh, whatever, I'm not going to listen to you, I'm like, okay. Like, you're not my kid. Like, I don't care. I'm not responsible for you. Like, I love you, but I don't, I don't, what am I going to do? My kid, I'm going to continue to go after, continue to pour into, to continue to love, to continue to try to correct and train up in righteousness in the way that they should go, right? And that's what the author's trying to say here, is God is doing some of these things towards us and allowing some of them to happen because he loves us. And he wants us to look more like him. And ultimately, he wants us to choose, instead of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. And he's saying, I don't want you to go that way, I want you to go this way. So are the times that God allows things or maybe even ordains things specifically to come into our lives so that he can train us as children that he loves. I was thinking too, and this is another faulty analogy that only goes so far, but I was thinking where, you know, when you take your kids to the doctors or you go to the doctors, you get this vaccine. It's, it's a little bit of a disease so that you don't get the full-fledged disease. I think it's the same thing, that God will allow little things to come into our lives and and maybe even big things to come into our lives to keep us from the huge suffering that awaits in eternity if we don't choose him. Does that make sense? That that there's this, this little stuff that comes along, but even if it's death, it pales in comparison to eternal death. So again, I know the analogy breaks down, but I'm just trying to make this somewhat relevant to us, that God loves us as his children. And he's training us to be like him and ultimately to to lead us into the kingdom of light and to desire that rather than the kingdom of darkness. But ultimately, does God do it on purpose? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. I am of the persuasion that everything that happens comes through God's hands. If I don't believe that, it makes him powerless. So I will err on all-powerful, 
meaning these things come through his hands first. Now, is all, all the trials that we go through, are they a result of you know, our specific sin in our lives? I don't think so. I think ultimately, right, we look back through all of humanity, we see that Adam and Eve sinned. Sin now perpetuates itself through all of humanity. And brokenness exists all around us, in us, in other people, in the world. So stuff's going to happen that isn't a direct result of my specific sin habits. Hurricane in Houston, right? Like, but it is a result of sin. It is a result of the kingdom of darkness having its way on earth. Now, does God send things our way when we do sin repeatedly on purpose, continuing going after the kingdom of darkness? Yeah, I think he does. I think he allows things to come into our lives to wake us up. To say, snap out of it. Why are you desiring the kingdom of darkness? Lean into the kingdom of light. So is all trouble and suffering a result of sin? My sin? I don't know. Is it all training sent on purpose by God? I don't know. But can it all be training and lead us into righteousness? Yes. All suffering can be training that leads us into righteousness, into the kingdom of light. And ultimately what the author in Hebrews is pushing these readers to understand is that you have a choice. You have a choice to be in this kingdom or this kingdom. Which will it be? You're going to suffer in either, but one leads to the kingdom of light. So training, yes. Punishment, probably not. Jesus already took that, remember. You know, for years... I didn't write this, just kind of an aside I'm thinking of now. For years, when I would go through hard times, I would think, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? How do I get out of this? What have I been doing wrong that you're punishing me for now? And I finally come to the point in my life where I'm realizing, no, Jesus took the punishment. I don't earn my way out of this. The gospel covers my sin. But I can be trained. I can learn to be more like God. And I can grow, and in that is fullness of life that Jesus promised. But ultimately, it's meant for training to drive us to him. So we can can endure and have hope through suffering because of what God has done in Jesus and what he's doing now in his love for us, in training us in righteousness. All right, let's look at one more thing. We can have hope in suffering by looking to God in the future by looking to what he will be doing and what he is already at work doing on our behalf. Now, I'm going to skip over 14 to 17. I'm going to go right to verse 18 for the sake of time. The author is again starting to compare things for these Hebrew readers. He's been doing it the whole book, saying there's there's this kingdom and there's this kingdom. There's temporary and there's eternal. And he does it again here in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire. You've not come to a mountain to, to, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Okay, just pause right here. This is Mount Sinai. When God is delivering the commandments to the people, when he's delivering the law to the people, kind of re-upping the covenant with the people, it was this terrifying scene 
where, he's, where this cloud descends on Mount Sinai, there's lightning, there's a, a fire-looking thing, he's warning the people, don't approach the mountain, if even an animal touches it, they will die, and, and Moses was terrified, everybody is freaked out by what's happening, because God has, is, is on earth speaking to the people, and the author here is saying, at this point, you've not come to a mountain, an earthly mountain like that, verse 22, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of uh, righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, he's making these comparisons over and over again. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, in Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, meaning everything. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, one of the greatest verses in Scripture right here in my mind, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This passage is meant one more time to say to to these Hebrew readers, listen, endure. Lean into this kingdom that is everlasting. Don't go back to this temporary kingdom. Don't go back to religion. Don't go back to just cities on earth. Look forward to the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. This isn't just the temporary Mount Sinai. This is eternal Mount Zion. This is what the the, the readers are supposed to be understanding and to be leaning into. It's just this final Warning. He talks about Esau in the early verses that I skipped, saying he couldn't go back on the bad decisions that he made. Don't do the same thing. Lean into the righteousness of God. Lean into the eternal kingdom that he has promised. I love there that again, one more time, he says, listen to him who speaks. Listen to him who speaks from heaven. To me, this book ends the entire book. When you go back to chapter 1, we see that Uh, The author is saying that God in the past has spoken to us through prophets, to our forefathers. Now he's spoken to us through Jesus. Jesus is the one speaking on earth from heaven saying, follow me. Come into my kingdom. And he's saying, don't ignore him. In light of your suffering, don't turn and go back to temporary things. Lean into what is eternal. That's where your hope is, is in eternal things that cannot be shaken. There's lots of different verses that pertain to this in the New Testament. One of my favorite ones is in chapter 8 of Romans. I would encourage you, if you're dealing with suffering or you want some encouragement this week, read chapter 8 of of Romans. Paul says, in one thing, he says, present suffering does not compare with the glory to come. He says, our present suffering, our temporary suffering, doesn't compare with the eternal glory that is to come to us in Jesus, in eternity. It's something that we need to remember on a regular basis. That that what we are going through now is temporary. As huge as it may seem, as terrible as it may be, and it is, 
It is temporary. Now, I know, I don't know how much you've read or been exposed to different philosophies or think about these things, but a lot of people will make fun of this mindset. They will poke at this and say, oh, look, look at these people with this pie-in-the-sky pie theology, this someday theology. I don't know about you, but for me, it's incredibly hopeful to know that there will be purpose revealed through this and that someday I don't have to deal with it anymore. I'm excited about that. I pray regularly that Jesus would return and end our pain and our sin and our death. To me, that's not pie in the sky. That's real hope, knowing that I can look forward to that. But we will suffer in the meantime. There will be pain. There will be struggle. Jesus himself said that we would have it. But he's overcome it. He has overcome the temporary, and he's overcome the eternal death as well. One of my passages I go to regularly when thinking about hope and thinking about what I look forward to most and what sustains me in the midst of suffering is in Revelation 21. This is what this author has been pushing towards this whole time, is saying that there is another kingdom. There is an eternal kingdom, an eternal city. And he describes it in Revelation 21. John has this vision of what it will look like. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Like We're going to talk about a new creation. It will be remade. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's the fulfillment of the covenant promises from all time. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It's finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost. From the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my child. This is what we have to look forward to in Jesus. This is what all of the the suffering that we go through trains us into desiring and wanting is the person of Jesus who comes back and remakes everything and wipes away all tears, wipes away death, wipes away pain. It's what he has started to bring us now and will bring completely in its fulfillment someday. Church, I don't have answers for the deep questions of why God allows suffering. I just know that it exists. You've experienced it. I've experienced it in small ways. And I know that sometimes the only answer is the hope of eternity. That starts now and comes with Jesus in its fulfillment. My wife and I have been to some really sad, suffering places. And there are times when you see these things and you're like, money's not going to fix this. 
townships in South Africa where kids can't get a good education and places in Tunisia where Christians are persecuted. Jordan with Palestinian refugee camps where there's no upward mobility, there's no education for these people. And yes, because of the power of new creation that we have now, we do our best to bring justice to these situations, a foretaste of the kingdom. But billions and trillions of dollars won't touch the hopelessness that's there. Only Jesus will. And only someday will it come in its fulfillment. That's the hope that we can point to for people in deep suffering. That's the hope that we can point to for ourselves, is that Jesus will redeem this mess somehow. He will remake it. And we can trust him for that because of what he's already done on our behalf. Because we can look back and see that. Church, that is what it looks like to go through suffering, is to remember the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done, what he's doing now, and what he will do in the future. Can you imagine with me what that would look like if we had that kind of hope? If we really were a church and a people and a community that had that kind of hope, that permeated all that we did, that we weren't fearful of elections and politicians, that, that, that we weren't discouraged by them because we remember that we have a true king for all of eternity, that we went through suffering and persecution knowing that God is in control and he's using it to bring about the kingdom of Jesus somehow more fully. As much as God is a mystery that allows pain, to me it's more so a mystery that he loves us in the first place. Because we don't deserve it. But he loves us and he's for us. We can't earn that. He's given it to us in the person of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the hope that we have to go through suffering. Would you pray with me? Father, you know every situation in this room that's represented here. You know the pain that we are in, the pain that we've gone through, the pain that's been put upon us by others, the abuses, the struggles, the deaths, the fear, the doubts. And a 35-minute talk isn't going to fix that. Only you can. Only the hope that you bring through Jesus can, can begin to even address those things. And only when our identity is wrapped up in you can we start to find a little bit of hope and then to build on that hope to become holy like you are, full of joy and contentment. Would you begin to do that now by the power of your spirit? Church, if there's stuff that you're dealing with, stuff where you're feeling hopeless, where you're suffering, give it to the Lord. Ask him to lead you. Ask him to reveal his presence to you, weeping alongside of you, like he did at the tomb of Lazarus. God is not aloof to our pain. He understands that he has walked in it. That's the glory of the gospel. Jesus, would you, by your spirit, give us hope to remind us that we are more than conquerors, that this earth will be shaken and these temporary things will go away, but we have an eternity and an eternal kingdom with you. And we have the foretaste of it now and we can build on that now and we look forward to its fullness. Jesus, we give you our suffering and ask that you would lead us 
that you would train us and you would continue to draw us into your kingdom through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.